Welcome to The Real Work, a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone. Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge. My guest today is Georgina Usher. Georgina is CEO of British Fencing and is a successful athlete herself, representing Great Britain at many European and World Championships and spending several seasons ranked in the world top 16 fencers. She holds 10 individual senior national championships titles and has won several Commonwealth medals, including gold in 2014. She currently competes in the 40-plus circuit where she is two times European champion. In her previous corporate career, she worked as a project manager, strategist, and business consultant for companies including Legal & General, Accenture, and CIO Connect. Since joining British Fencing in April 2014, Georgina has successfully implemented several initiatives to increase participation in fencing. Georgina and I talk about the culture she leads at British Fencing, the decisions she made as an athlete and mum, and how she got into and out of consulting. Her experience is a great example of someone going all in, not just setting goals and blindly running at them, but planning, project managing, and learning throughout. It was my privilege to know more about Georgina's pathway to leadership, including what some might call failure, but that she honours for the person those experiences shaped her to be. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome, Georgina. Great to have you. It's a pleasure. It's great to always uh, read those bios. I know um, there's there's so much there to unpack. It's quite a rich background. So how does it feel to hear your own bio coming back at you? Well, I think I was first struck about how long it is, which actually just (laughs) makes me feel old. Um, It was my birthday last week. So yes, you kind of think, oh my goodness, there's there's a lot there. And, And also I've always felt when people read back my bio, how if someone had started at the start and said, what's your career going to be like? And you'd, you'd say, oh, this is what's going to happen. It would have been, well, you know, it does feel a little bit random. And I think this is quite interesting. It wasn't, did I ever, did I set out to become where I am today to be the CEO of British Fencing? Absolutely not. But my life has taken so many interesting twists and turns that you yeah. end up with somewhat checkered, checkered CV and quite interesting. Checkered is a good word. I, I often think about careers as zigzagging like they seem to as you said you know people used to talk about the old career ladder which sounded so linear but now we just talk about moving from one <laughs> leap, exactly. leapfrogging from one place to the next so yes yeah. it's and I think it's about grabbing opportunities yeah so you know maybe when you start out you have a very defined vision but after three years my decision to give up work and go full-time fencing was a very kind of you know sudden zigzag if you like almost yeah. completely putting you on a, on a different path. Um, and when I look at some of the other choices around my career, it has, they've been quite opportunity-led. I felt like the right thing at the right time, um, whereas rather than perhaps in the past one might have a sort of an overall defining ambition and every decision takes you to, to the realisation of that. Mm, so just being able to spot, spot opportunities, I completely mm. agree. So I want to ask so many questions about this. Um, you know, what, what caused those zigzags, the decisions, what was going through your mind at the moment? So I definitely want to dig in. But first of all, I just had some 
um, insights, I guess, or a gift, as we call it, from our previous guests. So her name is Vivian Keystory, and she's a female founder. She's based in Vietnam, uh, and she's got this awesome story around innovation, skincare products that she's bringing to the market. Um, and she just had some comments from her experience to pass on to you. So she wanted me to share, you know, that hopefully you could enjoy this conversation, to be honest, and that she really felt you know, as female leaders and as leaders in general, it was so important to share these stories so that other people could benefit. So that's my gift to you is to just enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. So as we were saying, you know, your career is kind of traversed both high performance sports as well as high performance consulting and, and you know, professional corporate world. So what's your perspectives on some of the characteristics and the attributes that have underpinned some of that zigzag that we were talking about? I think that's a really great question. And I was thinking very much back around when you when you do sport at a very high level, you are, of course, very competitive. And I think you need to be a little bit open about that, that the, the desire to be the best, whether it's in sport or at work, is, is a key driver. And I would say kind of has to be there. The times in my life where where perhaps I haven't enjoyed where I'm going is because I'm not the passion hasn't been there. And for me, the, the, the learning that I got through my sport was really connecting with what, what, what is passionate, what, what has meaning for me. And, it, you know, fencing has, of course, been a theme, but the passion and meaning I get from my work now is not because I'm winning fencing competitions, but it's because I've sought out that, that, that feeling of, of passion in the work that I'm doing. So it's exploring mm. opportunities and connecting with things to say, do you know what, um, you know, for example, we do a, a project called Muslim Girls Fence, which is something I'm very passionate about. But, you know, you can get some some real pride about the work that you do there. And when you compare that to perhaps some of the titles that I've won, they are s- similar in what they give back to me as a person. But just, you know, but but of course, different. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the difference. So uh, when you are a high performance athlete, you create a team around you. And you have, and even though I did an individual sport, the the, the team mattered, and I, I would say that that is absolutely doesn't matter where you are, but becomes almost more and more important if you like that the better you get, the more that you connect and can trust the people that you work with. It becomes a collaborative team effort, which I think people might look at individual athletes and think, oh well, that's just a sort of you know one person exercise, and it is of course quite selfish because it's all around the athlete's performance but you know the power of a team is is incredibly important yeah so the passion the competitive nature um the pride in what you're doing but then this team element so how when you're looking at yourself in in the athletic sense and obviously this team aspect comes across so perfectly into the corporate sense as well so how are you selecting that team what are you looking for um, because in the athletic sense, I can imagine you don't really have a pro forma. There's no job description. Maybe there is. So what, what are you looking for in the people around you? <laughs> so when I, um, I, I think there are some, some huge similarities mm. because when you start, when I started off, if you like building my team to help me, um, you know, get to kind of, as I started out saying, how good can I be? You know, can I be world-class? And, and if I want to be world-class, who do I need to surround myself with? What help do I need? And of course, it really matters that you bring in skills and capabilities that you don't have. So in the athletic sense, that may be your physio, 
a sports psychologist you know I'm not a physio I'm not a sports psychologist I'm not my own doctor and even if I was you know could I heal myself probably yeah. not doctoring um, on yourself so probably not advised it, it, it doesn't work no <laughs> so so there are and it translates exactly to business you 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 know there is no point recruiting around you people who've had the same experiences and I will kind of go on to that later because I'm, I'm quite passionate around diversity and and um yeah and I have a, a fundamental belief that you know we need diversity you know because it's about diversity of thought and experience mm. and so bringing in people who have have you know a great skill set that they own that you don't because that complements and helps make up the dream so that would be kind of the first but I would say an ob- the most obvious thing more and more as I've I've kind of gone on this journey and looked at what's the difference between success and failure you also realize there has to be and it's something I'm very passionate about now and I learned from previous um, people that I work for it's about your values and trust mm. that has to be there because what that allows is a real freedom of creativity in the people that work as part of your team to help them be the best they can be rather than this kind of situation where perhaps you you attempt to micromanage or you don't give people that that ownership of the work they do because you're always interfering and and having faith and belief that if your values are the same then you can achieve great things and Mm. and where there is a disconnect on values I've been as I've got older a lot more efficient about perhaps identifying where our values aren't aligned and that also leads to companies that even we have British fencing work with because if you if you work in a partnership with an organization and you don't share the same values it's always going to be difficult and I think it's important you mentioned diversity of thought and how building that team around you who have different skills and expertise but also perspectives is so important to performance and then having alignment of values which I completely agree but do those things sit in opposition to each other diversity of thought and similarity of values where where is the difference in there so i mean let, let, I'll, I'll use as an example the british fencing values so so we have um which which i find very useful honesty respect and excellence so um in no particular order the the, the honesty piece is important so you and i can have a completely different view but but there needs to be honesty because if we don't if you and, and I think this is so important, if I, particularly as a chief exec, if your member of staff can't be honest with you that they think your idea is bad, then you, I don't think that makes for a healthy, that's not the work environment yeah. I like. I do want and encourage people to try, and I, I know it's impossible sometimes with my tendency to talk, but you want to give permission for people to say, hang on a second, I'd like to challenge you on that, be honest. Um, perfect example yeah really important and then but then you have to combine that with respect and I have to say on this point I am not a fan of of being brutally honest and ignoring how you make people feel that you know they those values absolutely don't sit equally they they, it's as you go through life you know are you when you I don't know you know you're thinking about um an uncomfortable conversation that you might want to have you can't just go into it saying well my desire to be honest is over going to override my respect that I have for that individual and their views. I might not agree with them and the respect I have for what they bring either to my organization or my sport. And therefore I might not want to be in terms brutally honest, but I still need to be honest. So I'd be mm-hmm. honest in a respectful way. So and now you're in relationship to each other. Yeah, exactly. And then the last one is about excellence. And that, that is a, a sense of where we as an organization would like to be. 
So in the work that we deliver. So it's the thing that pushes us so that, you know, do we all sit around going, oh, well, you know, that'll do, that'll do, quick, get it out. Working with people who always, who drive to excel, for, for me as a, as a, you know, I'll probably say an ex-athlete, but I thrive off that. You know, could it be better? And sometimes we do have to stop because, of course, I always say our, our values isn't perfection. Perfection is not a great value to have even as an athlete. It can drive all sorts of negative behaviours. And that's why I think excellence is a great standard. Mm. Um, and working in the team who all want to be excellent is, a, is just a fabulous place to be because everyone's striving together for this, this, this excellence. So, so, yeah, so I think that back to your earlier question, I don't mm. think that you having a different point of view, view to me, if we share the fact that we're going to be honest, we're going to talk about it respectfully, and we are driving to make the organization that we're in, or the product that we're delivering, or whatever it is, excellent, then, then we're all, you know, we're on the same page. It's a really good way of explaining it, um, because it makes it, the, the values in that sense of creating the bedrock, there is a commonality there. And that foundation gives you the sort of the cultural or the team, um, stability to then come up on top yep. of that and have difference of thought and difference of perspective and challenge yep. each other in a safe environment. So yeah, perfect. I love those. Um, I love those, uh, values and I, I completely agree about perfection. It's, um, how, how, how does an athlete or even an athletic organization have a relationship with perfection? Where is the boundary? And, you know, it sounds like you've had to, um, I guess, analyze that of like, where, where do we pull ourselves back? Cause I can imagine that that would be a, a gravitational pull for some. Um, I think if, it, in terms of the organization that I'm currently in, I almost don't have the luxury of perfection. So we're mm. very small, we're very under-resourced and we are agile and agility doesn't necessarily come with perfection. Perfection often requires time and space to really drill down on one particular area. Um, and what, you know, there just is, perhaps in our speed of working, I think that naturally takes us over the perfection. But, you know, I, I need to be careful of this because I was going over, I think it was our annual report for the nth time. And I thought, I've really got to stop this because if I spend three more hours on this, is that the most valuable thing that I can be doing for the sport? You know, or is it okay if it goes out because probably my members, you know, won't kill me for a couple of spelling mistakes or, mm -hmm. you know, grammatical errors. But actually it's about saying, you know, what's the value of the time that, that we spend on this in relation to, to what we might deliver. And of course, there's that 80-20 rule, which always gives my head, are you spending 80% of your time on the last 20%, which is okay if you get 80% of value back. But if you don't, if you're only getting 20% of value for the 80% of effort, then you really need to sort of rethink that balance and decide Draw whether perfection is, is necessary. Mm. But, you know, on the flip side, I did spend probably more, well, I say I spent a lot of hours in fencing. When you um, you make a hit, the um, there's a minimum weight that your point has to, you need to kind of mm -hmm. depress your point and it has to lift by. So, so essentially I need to hit you with a certain measurable force to score a point. And I used to spend hours getting my points just what we call legal, like hours. But that is the difference between scoring a hit and not scoring a hit. And if you think about the hours that I've spent to train to score a hit on some of the people who are the best in the world, 
why would I undo that by having a, you know, there's a spring that is in the tip that's so heavy, I have to push extra hard, and you know, because I would lose it. So there is a time and a place, and it's probably back to that value judgment of work out what it is. And if you're mm. driving for that perfection, just make sure that the what you get in return is worth the extra time that you're putting. Where's my efficiency? Yeah, and that's the, that's the beauty. I think so many people draw draw parallels between sport and business don't they it's perfect yeah. you know insights I don't know if it goes in the other direction do people in sports oh, talk about so. insight do they okay um, good well, <laughs> I, I'm not so sure if they do I think there are yeah. I've often been asked to talk about you know what what can business learn from sport but I certainly think sport can learn from business for sure yeah. Yeah. And certainly I brought some of the knowledge and that and kind of maybe ways of working um, from from the more corporate environment into the sports world and it that you know that that has worked really well so I think yeah. it's a nice thing you can we absolutely can both both sectors if you like learn from each other that's good to good to understand yeah because I think we, we spend so much time sports speaking about this kind of um you know uh, this the sporting world and watching it and I, I guess it's just interesting to know that the, the screen goes both ways sometimes um but yeah, it, it, we, we do take so much from this concept of training and insights into training and where are the efficiencies, where are the high payoffs, where are those one and two percents that are going to get you the most outcome as opposed to just blindly, you know, doing activity, <laughs> being exactly. in the space and expecting. So how do you be more thoughtful about your efforts and your inputs for, for the goal that you have? Exactly. So. You know, in the in the most basic uh, uh, analogy, I think training is really beautiful. But you you talked about some of your early career, and of course, you started in consulting before you decided to make this move uh, into focusing on your sport. So, talk to us about some of those early decisions. What took you into the consulting world, and what took you out of it at that point? So, um, it probably started back when I made a decision about what to do at university and and I, I actually went I did computer science at university which was a at the time I think only two universities in the country were doing a degree and of course for, for some people listening that's probably uh, yeah probably it's the only thing important. to do now um, yeah <laughs> exactly and and I think partly at the time I didn't have a view of what I wanted to be I didn't have I want to be a lawyer or a doctor I, just, I didn't have that I was just sort of quite curious and interested and of course this opportunity arose to study something that you know they weren't commonplace and I sort of thought well that's interesting and probably going to be I remember saying to myself I think they're going to be quite useful to know about computers yeah exactly so I so I went in and did the degree which was you know fantastic and I you know really enjoyed it and and then again that decision of don't really know what I want to do sort of naturally leads a little bit into consulting because you kind of go well then you're learning about business about organizations about technology and how it all fits together um and so there was that kind of real interest in that in in how that all works and hangs together so um following after university I took a few months out actually did my fencing and and then really started a sort of what I call the full-time plus consulting job which was a bit of a shock to the system I think because it was when you reflect back on the working environment um I I mean at the time we weren't allowed to wear trousers and I think that just gives you a women weren't allowed to wear trousers Mm. And it kind of does give you a sense of of how how women were treated in the workplace, not just in the organisation. I mean, this was commonplace. So this is not sort of, um, you know, one comp- one organisation yeah. particularly worse yeah. than another. It, it just it just was very much of of its era. And 
having having been at a university which was you know studying something like computer science and and actually prior to that being at a school where which was from last two years it was a, a boys school that took a, a few number of girls I never had never up until that moment never felt that being a woman could stop me just just mm. it, it's really odd but it's that kind of you know I'm not saying it's as necessary as bad as discrimination but you know that kind of thing of nobody had ever looked at me in a different way to go oh well then you know um you know uh, you, you're a woman therefore you can't do physics or you so don't you understand how computers work. Mm. and and I think that it was uh that was a little bit challenging for me and of course my personality would 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 naturally challenge that um and I think and after a while it was it was such long hours and and it really did you know some of the taxi rides home but 10 30 11 o'clock at night having kind of been in the office since six in the morning you kind of go you know what's missing is the passion I mean mm. it's, wrong, it's interesting but is this it is this is this now my life and of course it was very much felt that you know you have at uh, the time you have this great reward that one day if you work super super hard you you know you might I don't know make partner make partner make a lot of money but I think think I I you know, it reflected internally, it was, is this is what I'm going to put up with? <laughs> this, this is how my life is going to be. Yeah. And it was, I, I do actually remember some sort of, there were a couple of things that, um, uh, you know, kind of a couple of late nights and lonely, lonely train journeys and taxi rides. And I thought, you know what, if this is it, and if this is the rest of my life, then if I get to the end of it, what am I going to regret having not done? Because I think we all, you know, we all do need to think about that. You know, somebody said to me, oh, when you're in your pipe and slippers, you'll look back on some of the moments in your sport career and, you'll, you know, and your working career and be proud and you should be proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, what am I going to look back on? Not that I smoke. So, but. That's good. I was imagining I, you with a pipe. Yeah. It did bring up a, yeah. <laughs> but it's that kind of analogy, isn't it? You kind of see yeah. yourself as like, you know, if, if I'm fortunate enough to live to a life somewhere. Like somewhere yeah. Cozy up somewhere for reflecting on my life and going, what, what, what would I regret? And, and I very much felt this. I had never up until that point poured all my efforts into achieving in, in, into kind of this, this one thing, which was how good could I be in fencing? And I didn't know, you know, I, of course I tried to, you know, the, the goal for every athlete is to make it to the Olympics. Um, and I didn't make it. And that, that's a sort of big failure that we probably can touch on later because it, it um, you know, it, it's a question that people always ask, but I, it, it was, was a goal, but in my head, it wasn't the goal because for me it was how, how good can I be? I'm, I'm top in Britain, but I'm, you know, outside the top 100 in the world. Could I be a world-class fencer? Don't know. And, and then I thought, and I do want to know. I want to I know the answer to that question. Mm. So I think that was the start of the journey. It wasn't just like, okay, so tomorrow I'll just give up and somehow then, you know, um, it, it was, I think it took about two and a half years. I changed my job slightly. I um, sort of went contracting so I could earn and save money. I spent a lot of time developing and building my team I referred to earlier around me looking at things that I could do in this country whilst the sparring wasn't great and that's why I had to move to Hungary what could I do in the UK massively focus on strength and conditioning um, you know other aspects of the game and then save off enough money to ultimately go and train full-time in Hungary for a few years mm-hmm. um, which is what I did. Amazing and so it was a real you know I love that if I just reflect back to you it was this realization what do I want to do what do I want to be able to say about myself? I think because there's this athletic window, 
when you're thinking, okay, I'm in my prime at this point, so it's now or never yes, <laughs> to make this, yeah, to make this happen. But then you really saw it as a graduated approach. You you kind of, um, as you said, assembled the team and then thought about how, what conditions do I need to get to, to take it? So I think a lot of the time people have this fear when they're on the precipice of, even if they've answered that question and they've said, yes, I want to do this, they think that there needs to be a, a, a stark <laughs> change yeah. I wake up tomorrow I quit my job and I all of a sudden the next yeah. day I'm gonna but but to say that you were actually graduated towards it is is that what you see in other people or is that was that unique to to yourself so I've always felt very lucky and remember I referred to earlier what sport can learn from business so mm. I had already been in a consulting environment which is all about at the level I was at project management planning mm. And, and so that was how I approached it. It's like a sort of, you know, a problem. I'm here and I need to get to here. What do I need around it? So, um, you know, I, I, I recently we were moving some boxes around and I found all my notes that I'd written at the time. And it was quite a comprehensive set of on all my competitions and notes of what I wanted to do. And it was a very, um, you know, probably professional program because it was clearly being written by someone who was approaching it as a business problem translated into sport. Yeah, so interesting. And, Mm. And that I do feel is some of the stuff that that um, certainly sport, I think more and more with world-class programs. So when I started out, there wasn't really such a thing as a world-class program. And the UK sport kind of investment has allowed so many sports to really adopt that much more professionalized model. Mm. And it really has a massive impact because it kind of helps and supports athletes within a structure where all that's provided. Whereas at the time I had to kind of create it all myself. Um, but I think that the also or I say I was lucky to have my work experience because that could be, you know, I could take the skills out of that and transfer it over. I was a little bit older mm. and um, probably that was okay back then. I think it was about 27 when I finally went to Hungary. Probably people might argue that these days you might have to be a bit younger. So mm. the big question so is, is benefit from that. Mm. Exactly. If I was a 19 year old, would I have been able to do what I did when I was sort of 23, I don't think I would have been able to do that. So I would have needed help. And there, yeah. So it just came at the right, oddly enough, you know, whilst, whilst perhaps you, you know, people say, well, there, I never, I felt that experience in the consulting environment helped me in, in two ways. First of all, it did give me a grounding for future professional, my professional career, but it absolutely helped me mm. translate and plan for success in my sport. It's just the logic and the framework for making that yes. decision. Yeah, yes. so interesting. And so tell us, you moved to Hungary and you're obviously there for an explicit purpose to raise your game yes. and to train. How did you adjust culturally? Can you reflect back on like what, what was it like living in, um, in that environment? Well, I've been asked this question before because people, it was, I think to some people they'd say it's quite lonely. So I had a, a small flat and I think it was on the fourth floor um near the, near the center of Budapest and my days were they're going to sound awful you know I got up at I don't know probably about seven o'clock made breakfast got on the bus arrived at a, um, a venue it was completely deserted apart from the cleaner I'd sort of run around to run around the kind of running track to warm up do some stretching do a bit of weights my coach would come in and give me um, a lesson then do more weights then I'd go home lunch sleep and then I would turn up back at club and fence my way through all the sessions whether it was from the you know the 15 year olds to the 35 year olds I kind of did as much fencing so I, I absolutely immersed myself in fencing mm -hmm. so I didn't really immerse myself necessarily in 
in the culture of Hungary or Eastern Europe particularly. I mean, obviously I was mm. living there, but but my once I had, you know, if you plan for so long to move somewhere, this wasn't the time to go, now I'm going to do Hungarian lessons and do, I don't know, I was everything I did. Right about the was, politics and the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I, I absolutely, of course, in my off time, you know, you don't necessarily spend all your time fencing or sleep. I used to go, it was a bit like fence, eat, sleep. That's the athlete's life. Sleep, yeah, repeat. exactly. You know, that's yeah. all it was. Um, and, and then compete every now and again and, and then go back to eating and sleeping. Um, so it, it, but to me, it was every day. I do remember getting, I said, this is amazing. Like, I loved it. It was yeah. hard. And of course, there were times after training where you've lost every fight and with fencing, because people are actually hitting you, that can be quite soul destroying. But that's where the passion matters. And I talked about this at the beginning. If you have a real passion for something and a real joy, then it drives you to work incredibly hard and put in all those hours. And to me, it wasn't lonely or boring. It was I just couldn't wait for the next fencing session. And every day felt like I was achieving and learning something in an area that I, you know, I loved. Um, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have social media to show me all the things I was missing out on. So I didn't have to live there and see perhaps what athletes have to see today. You know, their friends are off I don't know, buying houses or cars or having relationships. You're sitting, you know, which if you're sitting alone in a flat in Hungary, scrolling through social media now, you would probably feel a lot more alone. Mm. But that, because that didn't exist. I'd, once a week, I went and got an hour at the internet cafe to email my family. Yeah, so you actually just got to focus, yeah. Exactly, and Mm. it was such a, and, you know, and for for my my reflections on that, and I was talking to another athlete who did something similar at the same time, who said, you know, know, you earn earn no money. To most people, it's a horrendous lifestyle. You know, you wouldn't wish it on anyone. But we just feel so lucky to have had Mm. that part of our lives, to have been able to kind of indulge this passion really focus on something you love and you know and it's something that will that feeling will stay with me for my entire life and if someone said do it again tomorrow go back in time do that whole thing again and I think this is interesting because it makes me reflect on things I've uh, on certain experiences if you knew that everything was going to pan out pretty much exactly as it did before so you're going to do this huge journey and you're still not going to go to the Olympics would you do it again knowing that or would you make a different life choice Mm -hmm. I would like a shot do it again and, yeah. and to me, I can live with that mm-hmm. because I, I got so much more out of the experience than um, than was kind of offset, if you like, by the yeah. by the failure, the journey as opposed to the end. Yes, and end it's a terrible mm. thing because, of course, it's people always talk about the journey, but it is so important because our journey is our lives; it's our day to day life. And talking back to the kind of organisation that that I feel, I mean, I feel lucky to work at British Fencing, surrounded by my team, because it matters to me that we work well together mm. and we get on together because they are my team that are around me are part of my life. I spend more time talking to them than I do my own family. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just sort of, yeah. And, and we are on this journey together and we should be extremely proud of some of the things we've achieved, but we have to enjoy the time we spend together. And if we don't, then that's, that's the, the, the inkling that, that, you know, people do we talk about. Yeah sometimes you have to move on from jobs and it's just because your life takes you in a different direction and your journeys don't match and, and that's entirely okay but let's yeah. make the journey as great as possible whilst we're on it together absolutely 
I often speak to people early in their careers because I do a lot of um, MBA coaching and um, people are always asking like, what are the, what are the steps I need to take? How do I, how do I get to where I'm going? And I think often when you're at the beginning, you're thinking, what's the hack? Exactly. <laughs> what's the quick way or just tell me how to do it and then I'll go and do it. I remember thinking that myself. Yes. But I mean, just, just now where you are and just looking back on what you've said, there's, there's no hack for just taking the path and having the experience. And yes, there's smarter ways you can do it. You, there's probably some accelerations, some de-accelerations in the learn, but there's nothing that replaces having experiences exactly. <laughs> in your life. It's experiences. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. I have to say it's, it's hard work. Yeah. I th- I think it's not fun while you're in it. Yeah. yeah. You know, but if you can make it fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is the thing, if you have passion for it, passion and hard passion and a work ethic, I'd give you an amazing life. Yeah. Whereas passion without a work ethic is, I mean, and it, it it probably is quite out of control and directionless. And a work ethic without a passion, that that just feels wasted. Yeah. Because that that would be the drudgery of what have I spent my last forty years doing? Well, I've worked really hard, but but have I have I had the passion and the connection? Yeah. And it's okay and to have. I think. I don't think those. I think if you are so lucky, if you can come out as a young person and know and have a completely grounded view of where your passion lies. You know, it's brilliant. And you meet people like that. You know, maybe you are absolutely passionate about, about being a doctor or a lawyer in a particular area or whatever, and, and, but I never had that. And I often found career conversations extremely tough because of this requirement almost. And it's the interview question, where do you see yourself? Oh, my God, I don't know where I see myself. No, don't uh, ask me today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where are you going to be in 10 years? I'm like, I yeah. don't know. But hopefully I've had a great, you know, fun time and I've enjoyed it and I'm still working with a group of people that I'm really in, enjoying working with and, and hopefully the, the reverse is true. Mm. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, a tricky one and I, I, I don't think there yeah. are particularly necessary shortcuts and I think one needs to be not pressurised by what other people are telling you is important and I feel that that there is a there is also pressure on young um, young people to you know they are so young and you kind of go I'm now in my late 40s but I can have a change of career tomorrow if I want to because yeah, I've got, probably got another you know goodness knows 15 to 20 years however long but you know our lives can take on so many different directions as you said before zig and zag you don't need to be just sort of this way for your entire life and embracing opportunities and exploring passions is is in and of itself a worthwhile thing to do yeah. Um, and not to focus on the, I mean, of course, I understand, you know, perhaps if people have financial needs that you have to meet and debts to pay back it, that absolutely is an issue. Um, but hopefully starting out in people's careers, they won't necessarily have the dependencies that sometimes when you're older and you've got children and a family, you are locked into at least finding work that provides a level of income. Yeah. If you aren't locked into that, use that space like I did to explore yeah, your passion. To explore. It's the thing, isn't it? I, I, we always have to remember there's there's a baseline of certain privilege and let's call it a luxury to be able to make make some yeah. of these choices. But if exactly. you are in that space, it's and I think uh, you know just to come back on what you've said, you talk about instincts, you talk about following opportunities, you know, making sure that you you kind of you know have this combination of of hard work and passion coming together. And I think what a lot of people, particularly early career, but even as they hit mid-career, are, are thinking about 
how do I find purpose? (laughs) And it seems to be that perfect marriage, as you said, of passion and, and hard work and something that compels me to contribute. And and it's it can be elusive. It's a very hard thing, especially when you're trying to look for it and thinking it's a it's a hard object that you're going to bump into one day. But the the challenge with finding purpose, which I think we're just mentioning there, is finding purpose that actually fits within the economy and the social context that you're in at the time. And that can be a really hard thing because I see so many young people graduate into. You know, I came out of university and I was, t- I was came out of high school into university. I was told follow your passion, and so I went and studied graphic design or I studied sociology or I studied whatever and then now I'm getting deposited into this workforce where I'm not actually in demand <laughs> so my exactly. purpose my, my purpose message wasn't really doing me any favors and so what's your thoughts on any message or, or, or advice that you could share with people about getting the mix right between the purpose and the reality I suppose I, I think that's a, um, a, a really great question because certainly I would absolutely encourage people to explore their passion at university. I mean, if you don't do it, then the kind of where, when would you do it? Mm. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, like I, as I said, I, I didn't have a passion for consulting. I, I had a sort of, you know, a, a didn't, an interest, um, but clearly that wasn't, that wasn't where my passion lay. My passion lay in this really weird sport called fencing that hardly anyone did. And, you know, and I was, as you said, it, it, I, I had a moment and the, the situation I was in allowed me to make some choices. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I did, I do reflect on some of my happiest moments were in a flat in Hungary, where, as I said, it's like that kind of, you know, one room flat with a tiny little kitchen kind of bedrooms in the living room. So basically a bed sit and eating, you know, 10 pounds a week is my food budget. I, my living costs were, t- you know, I had no, I had the same secondhand Adidas tracksuit for three years. Wow. I didn't yeah. care. I really mm-hmm. didn't. You know, it was all about my fencing and getting to do what I loved um my fashion you know thank goodness there are no pictures for my fashion choices back then <laughs> yeah. so so and, and and actually that has released me from stressing too much about financials because I know that my happiness is not actually dictated by my material goods don't get me wrong you know love nice things as much as the next person but I'm always know that I am confident in the fact that I don't need that yeah. to make me happy but it's what freeing. I do yeah exactly what I do need is a passion and a purpose now I learned, I, I um, went on a very interesting sort of development course, and we were talking about passion and purpose and meaning, and particularly as you get to a, get to a more senior level. So sometimes your passion and purpose does get lost throughout your career because you do you get your head down, you know, there's the grindstone, and the years go by, and perhaps then you sort of you know think, oh, hang on a second, maybe I was really passionate about um, you know, whether it's graphic design or something else. And, and, and I've lost that. And I think that I've probably got two bits of advice around that. I think one, one bit of advice to demonstrate if you have a, have a passion is to, um, keep talking about it. So I'm a great believer and you kind of, it's like, you know, you put stuff out in the universe and it comes back, you know, if you, and, and this is quite, this is actually how I started Muslim girls fence, because I was very, when I got to the level I was at, I was very keen that, you know, that, some of the amazing things that fencing have given me, I wanted to, to, to pass that on. And it's not just about the act of learning to fence. There's so much more around that. And how could you, I really help kind of 11 year old girls who are mm. experiencing tough times at school benefit from something that I benefited from, but I was lucky enough to benefit it because I went to the kind of school that did fencing. So how do, how do we change that and give that opportunity to other people? And it took me years 
years of going around talking to people, anybody that would listen, I would give them the pitch. And eventually I found so lucky to find an organization, Maslow Heart, and, you know, went, met them, talked at, at them. As I did. <laughs> and they were like, this is really interesting. You know, and we connected and we had this mm. shared, shared values and, and, you know, and from that, this project Muslim Girls Fence has grown. And so for me, that, that bit of don't give up on that, that sense that you want to do something a bit different and keep talking about it. Don't bury it, bring it to the front. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so I said there was, there was two things. I think the, the, yeah, absolutely. The, the keep, the keep talking about it. Um, and also, and I guess this is more when I get to the social impact side of things and, and what I feel as a responsibility, it's it's harder when you're growing up but but hard work will in often many of the businesses that you're talking to people in you will get you'll be successful and I think that once you are successful you have some sort of responsibility to think wider about your impact on society what mm-hmm. what is it that you have that might not you know might be aligned or may not be aligned with 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 your original passion that, that you explored at university but you know how could you make I say life different and life better it, you know I've my project is so small but it's had such a big effect particularly yeah. on people that the project and I kind of go you know what I'm not going to save the environment you know I'm not I, I don't have an expertise in that area but I I feel that I've got to the level where I have a responsibility and and you know and I talk also about diversity you don't just you've got You've got to understand that that if you want boards that are diverse, that have got more women, more um, people from different religions, different different ethnic backgrounds, you can't just sit and go, oh well, the, the you know, I put the job out, job advert out, and it's anyone can apply. You yeah. have a responsibility to reach out to those members of the community who who because of what they've experienced in their life, maybe don't think they're good enough, or don't notice the job opportunity, or would you know I mean we often say women are not so good at putting them pushing themselves forward as men and so you know reach out to people and be proactive about bringing people up and bringing people through mm, but also Rather nurture them from the grassroots yeah. is what you're saying if there's yeah. this 25 year <laughs> objective it's yes. not a yes. it's not a hiring today it's how am I planting that seed exactly. for, for the next cycle of yeah. boards or whatever it exactly. might be absolutely mm. Yeah, I, I agree. Purpose can be so elusive, but I like these ideas of like continuously talking about it because it's going to roll and yep. you're kind of doing experiments to see where does it land, where yep. does it hit and where do I then see my opportunity. But as you get more senior, thinking about it realistically, like someone's going to save the environment. So if that's a, a listener's objective, then that's great. But for you, you were saying have an impact within my span of control yes. Yes. <laughs> that I can actually see an outcome from. Yeah, I yes. really completely agree. And so you mentioned the F word before, which I know is something that you've, you've you know, explored in your career. You, you talk about it as failure. And I was almost thinking when you mentioned it before, you threw it out and it kind of cavalier away. But I know that you've explored it and really thought about it and analysed this concept of failure from a few angles. So can you talk about that? Obviously, you mentioned you had a goal, one of many goals to go to the Olympics, which didn't, you know, eventuate. So how do you see that experience today now that you look back? So looking, when I think about not making it to the Olympics, I always talk about being transported back into a sports hall in Armenia. And I remember the fight a bit like it was yesterday. And 
everything that I had kind of, you know, this moment that I had built up for didn't happen. And, you know, and for the people that supported me, it didn't happen. For members of my family that might have thought, oh, we we're going to, you know, go out to Sydney to watch Georgina Fence in the Olympics. It didn't happen. Oh, I can't believe it was Sydney and that you didn't get to, to my, go to. Yeah, I exactly. Have, crosses my path. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Sponsors that have supported me yeah. and that feeling of, of, of letting everyone, not only myself down, but this feeling of, you know, you can't run and hide from that failure. It's very public and it's, um, and it's, so many years and there is not like it's not like you failed an exam and can resit it it's just that's it that really is it and it took it's taken me years to reframe that in a more positive way because I think that when with, with a huge emotional investment as well as financial and everything else that you put in something when it doesn't work out there is the tendency to just want to shut down that area of your life you know reject it kind of pretend almost pretend it hasn't happened but the problem with that is that it it, it sits there as this kind of big thing that you haven't really come to terms with and then has the potential to be that lasting chip on your shoulder and particularly if you want to stay, and at the time I didn't know I wanted to work in sport, but if you wanted to be in sport and people talk to you about, you know, what have you done? And as soon as they find out that you were good at something, inevitably, they will always ask about the Olympics. And so to kind of black box that is not healthy. We're going to have to, you know, because people keep opening that box Unpacking, door. So yeah. unless you're going to cry every time someone opens that box, you're going to have to to frame this, this experience that you've had differently. And so I think that it's not, it certainly wasn't an overnight um, kind of journey for myself. Um, and it, it, you know, so, so it took time. And I think some of what I reflected back to you already in terms of reframing the journey and understanding that would I, you know, things like, would I do it all again, knowing the outcome? If so, what else did I learn from it? And, and then also going, if I'm, am I defined therefore by my failure is that the thing that you know they're going to put on my gravestone Georgina Usher no brackets didn't make it failure yeah and I was like no you know that 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 becomes so much less of my story as I get older of course but it also becomes a, a sort of part of the story I need to kind of embrace and be proud of because you know trying and failing is something that if if humans if we as a human race did not try and fail well, no one would have we never got anywhere would we yeah because it's that repeated trying and failing and trying and fail that that you know that that's where creativity happens and amazing stuff happens and good things happen and there is such a um I think the F word you say it's the F word it's it has so many negative connotations it's a bit like people do everything they can to avoid failure whereas we have a, a bit of a, the CEO chat at British Fencing is all about failure because mm. what it is giving people permission to do is say, look, you're going to come to British Fencing and, you know, you'll have your first year. And, and I said, and we really do embrace failure as a way of learning. So let's say you do five things, you know, you're going to fail at one of them and it's going to be your fault because people make mistakes and we're a team. We're all going to be here. So the moment that something looks like is going to fail, you let us know and we're going to right behind you because we've all failed. And that's so powerful because a blame culture where people hide failure creates all sorts of problems. You want to get mm-hmm. those failures. You want to, you know, help people recover from their failures because sometimes, you know, and people, and, you know, and, they, and you learn from them. Now, clearly, if you don't learn from them and make repeated failures, 
on the same things and that's a slightly different conversation yeah and i said you know and then the second thing out of the five you're going to be a failure and it's not your fault you, something happened and honestly nobody would have predicted that coming coming and again it's okay because it's happened to all of us we're all going to get behind you we'll help you know we get together as a team we'll help fix that and then what mm-hmm. you'll have is your know, five projects two i said two of those projects will just be kind of run of the mill okay and then also look for something look for that project that one thing i said it doesn't necessarily need to be core in your workspace but something that after the end of the year when people go how is your work at british fencing you turn around and go do you know what i was really proud of this Mm. so every year look for something it's back down to that purpose and passion and find that and if that is in a slightly different area let's talk about how we can make that happen for you so you're not Mm. just sitting in the kind of churning the handle the boring bit find something that you're that, that you can really that's where that excellence you know back, back to the thing the striving for excellence find something you could be really excellent at and that's going yeah. to be exciting I like hearing you say that it's um it's from a from a psychology perspective obviously failure when we rethink about it we re-wound ourselves we replay that tape and it's you know we depending on the story that's on that tape you yes. you're you're kind of grooving it deeper and deeper into exactly. your mind Whereas what I hear you saying is counterbalance that with things that you're proud of, which again, as, as we tell a story to ourselves of the things that we're proud of, it creates a different set of hormones, a different set of chemical yeah. reactions in your brain, which actually allows you to open up. Because as we, as we feel the shame of failure and as we feel the embarrassment or the, the lost opportunity, cognitively you close down, you stop yeah. seeing opportunities, you stop listening or hearing, whereas that opportunity to feel grateful and proud of yourself actually opens yeah. you up. It's expansive, isn't it? So you you, exactly. you create an opportunity to perform there. So I like what you're doing with the yeah. behaviours in your culture because it's yeah. mentally it's giving so, people It's space. so important to mm. be open about failure to share it because, as you said, your inclination is to shut yourself down and not tell anyone about your failure. But, but that failure is an opportunity sometimes to bond with your, your team and to yeah, realize that the human. everybody then gets to go, yeah, oh God, I had, I had a terrible, you know, and I said, if you want to come and talk to me, I'll be really open about some of the decisions that I've made as a CEO that were really not very good, but I've also made some really great decisions too. And so you just talk about the great ones more often, yeah. but, but remember that we're all, you know, we're all human. We all fail. And, and let's try and, and, and almost give us the opportunity to help you in failure it, because that is sort of you know sh- allow us to share in that and and help you don't take failure so person you know introspectively yeah. because believe me believe me you know we will share in your success your success is our success so your failure has to be our responsibility as well so it's yeah I, I love the way you're counterbalancing it and I think as you say it has to be unpacked I think that there was a period in time there were several books that came out um that started to glorify failure in a sense and it had to be talked about. It has to be yeah. come out of the shadows. You know, you can't let those things, the, those personal stories can't, you know, they, they re-traumatise you if they sit in the shadows. But at the same time, it, as you pointed out, it's like share your failure, but failure in and of itself isn't the celebration. Yeah. It's the failure with the learning yes. <laughs> afterwards exactly. um, as to how you how you move forward. Um yeah, I'm interested. I would, I would, sorry, I would say about, a little bit about failure and the traumatization. But clearly, you know, uh, what I would say is if one has a really, tra- I mean, a really traumatic experience, yeah. then that can't be dealt with in that way. So we are no, talking yeah. about failure in terms of, 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 you know, that wasn't quite emotional failure, but it didn't, I would, you know, 
the, the I didn't have to go to therapy because of it. Whereas, you know, particularly within the work organization, we are, I'm saying, you know, we're talking about failures in a business sense rather than in an incredibly personal sense. Because as you say, yeah. the, 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 the traumatic, if it, if it is a traumatic incident, it can be very difficult for people to talk about. It. Exactly. And we need to be really conscious of like, we're talking about, garden variety stress that can enrich us exactly. and grow from we're not talking about distress exactly. and I completely recognize that for people who are in distress we we need to be respectful of that experience yep. for sure um can you remember at the moment when you realized that you weren't going to the Olympics like what did it feel like in your body can you tune into where you were feeling it and the experience that you had physically <sighs> so I you know I can relive that now mm. um so I think that one of the things is that horror, that you know that prickly that prickly feeling is that kind of I mean and and obviously that moment where you fail I'm 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 physically kind of you know if you like my heart rate is already at its maximum my mm. emotions are at the height the blood's rushing around my body and then of course there's that kind of you know obviously you, you're already pumped up in in adrenaline and I think the it it probably is not dissimilar to the feelings of shame. You know, when you feel really embarrassed and you just, and it's that feeling you want the world, you just literally, can the world oh, open wow. up a hole mm. in the floor? Can I just dive into it? And I just don't want to be seen again. And you really can see how people, and I think it's very hard for athletes who've suffered failure because they do, that does happen. You know, you just want to hide from the world. It's an entirely normal and natural reaction. Um, and I think as a, and that's why I have the talk at work because it, it's completely normal for people want to, to want to hide their failures and to disengage from those people that can help them. And what we have to do in work and in sport is recognize that when people are at that point of, of, of failure, if you like, they do really need help and support. And yes, okay. There's the leave Georgina alone whilst her heart rate goes down and you might get a different F word coming out if you go too close to her. But, you know, but then there's a time and place to start wrapping around people who failed yeah. at, at quite a high level. And I, I spoke to, to a, um, a woman who's been running, who's running a charity, I think, that helps um, Olympians mm. come to terms with kind of, you know, everyday life and, and perhaps, a, you know, changing career and, and how they develop and, and their sense of loss when they move away from, uh, something being incredibly sent, um, incredibly good at, and then have to find meaning and purpose elsewhere. But we had a very long, interesting story because I'm, of course, quite passionate about for all the people that go to the Olympics. There's a group of people that we never talk about: the people who fail to get there. Mm -hmm. But without those people who've tried and tried and failed, the Olympics wouldn't be what it would be. You know, we're all that pyramid that what drives the incredible achievements of the gold medalists it's the shoulders of people like me who've been trying and trying and you know it, it, it's this so there's something around helping those people who haven't necessarily made it sort of not feel that they've been I don't know just sort of tossed out by the system and discarded mm. but that they too and you know I I was lucky um that in my sport people have repeatedly reached out to me to get me to help with other things yeah so that I failed in my you know my mind not getting to the Olympics but I was at, uh, you know at the time Scottish fencing the board of Scottish fencing asked me to help out with Scottish fencing um over time I was asked to get back involved with things with British fencing I did some coaching down my club so so this wasn't I didn't feel you know it wasn't like oh 
and I think when you've been ejected from the community yeah no actually the community kind of embraces you and 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 that's an amazing thing of sport and I think it's really hard if people reject their sport and you know I, I I went back into fencing I didn't just I think I stopped for a bit but I didn't go right that's it and in fact when I didn't qualify, I was asked to go and support the pentathletes, which I have to say is the single hardest thing I've ever had to do emotionally mm. to go travel to Australia as a effectively a sparring partner and sit in the kind of Olympic holding camp to, to be there to allow pentathletes, um, you know, to train against me so they could go off to the games and then ultimately win their medals. Mm. That was really, that, that was difficult, particularly, you know watching the opening ceremonies and the, you know and, and being yeah. there buzz of everyone else being so excited to go and kind of you know being a, a kind not of being in the center an yeah uh, and that it's was a real was character moment that is really tough mm. I didn't realize you you had actually gone to Sydney just not in the in the capacity as an athlete but in the capacity of the sparring partner for another so we, went Brisbane, uh, we went to a holding ah, camp, Coast, right. which is lovely yeah. actually so it was a, for know, sure Commonwealth yeah. Games have been there recently yeah um so it is a character moment, not just that moment when you've not been, you know, passed forward, moving forward to the Olympics, but also in those following moments when you're, you're in your, uh, another capacity. Can you recall, like, how, how did you behave towards uh, your competitors, towards the other people in that critical moment when the blood's rushing through your ears and you're, you've had that realisation moment? How did you act? Um, oh, that's a really good question. Do you know what? I don't know, but I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think I reacted. Well, possibly would have been, I think everybody gets cross. I mean, I don't Mm. think anybody kind of finishes, whether it's any type of, you know, major event where you've just lost when it really matters. You you know, I don't think I met anybody that can put on a completely bouncy face in that, in that second, you know. I was I was watching some podium moments recently and we're looking at, you know, somebody getting awarded the silver medal at the Olympics with a face like thunder. You know, and I was like, you know, it's 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 difficult. You're not gonna, yeah. you know, graceful losing is not is yeah. is is a very difficult thing to do. And if graceful if all you can do is just keep your face straight and say nothing and that's the best of it, you know, it's the best of it. Then I would have done a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a person who throws masks or weapons or partly because they're quite expensive and I, there's a sort of there's always that bit in the back of my mind of, yeah, of I paid the, the sort of yeah. safe there's two things safety first and secondly I paid for it and I'm not damaging it um so um but it was yeah I was I was very lucky we had um uh, a team at the time the team manager there Graham Watts who was had been incredibly supportive and so I had people around, you know, I wasn't alone. Yes, I was alone mm. on the people in the moment of loss. It was a very personal loss. But having people, you know, people around me, we were part of a small squad that were out there. You know, everybody everybody had known my journey, gave me the space that I needed and were there to support me. And 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 I think it's back down to the who do you have around you at important moments yeah. in your life. Yeah. And those people are so important because the right people help you and help you cope and rather than you um you know because I, I I certainly don't remember that I particularly you know physically or particularly emotionally I'm absolutely sure I cried yeah a lot. if ever there was a good yeah. moment to yeah yeah there would exactly. have been a lot of tears but I, mm. but it, it's not a um but I was never a kind of um athlete that would necessarily do anything other than put a towel over my head and have a really good 
yeah. fly. Private moment in a very small space. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, the reason I ask is that uh, the the Tour de France finished recently, and I don't know if you you saw, but they had one rider who was in yellow. He was winning for you know eighteen odd of the twenty one days, and it came up to day twenty <laughs> when they literally have you know just the ride along the Champs Elysees left. And uh, a Slovenian rider, and he lost to another Slovenian rider, literally on the last day. Yeah, I heard about that, yes. Oh, and they're, you know, I don't know how big Slovenia is, so I'm assuming in my mind that these two people know each other yes. <laughs> um, because they're in this, you know, very niche sport. And, a, and a, uh, yeah, and so, but to see how they, when they have those moments of realisation, you know, because they're in a time trial at the end, so not everyone's crossing the line at the same time. There's, there's uh, an, you know, uh, there's a period of time before they realise what's happened. And, of course, you see that he's crushed and you see both people crying. But then for one person to approach the other and say, in this moment, I only have a 30-second window to tell you well done because I don't know what I'm going to say later. <laughs> yeah. But here is my character moment where I can or cannot, you know, rise above this these emotions and these feelings yeah. that I'm naturally having. It's so charged. Exactly. Um, and I, I, I can't begrudge people who throw their equipment around in that moment I can only imagine that that's how I'd feel but when you see for an outsider who's not a professional athlete when you see someone behave that way that's part of the emotion of sport is seeing the camaraderie and the bravery that comes with losing actually exactly I mean we we in fencing it's there's there's a whole etiquette around fencing and of course the that etiquette is ingrained in you so so if I'm fencing you when we finish we salute each other and we shake hands Mm. and we shake hands with the referee and then we go to our bag Throw down the mask, get the towel, and have a moment. Yeah, um, and and I think that's a sort of um, you know a, a, a kind of a failure. I would say dance, but you know you're so, that's so ingrained in you that it it I, it's a bit different when you're finishing a running race to actually go and find the person to shake their hands. This is all part you always mm. you know. And and when we talk back to the values of honesty, respect, and excellence, it's the respect piece that one of the reasons we chose respect is because it plays out in the world of fencing. If you don't have respect for the rules and respect for your opponent, we wouldn't have a sport. And 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 that is is so ingrained in the psyche of the sport that I do that, you know, when I said I can't really remember because I would have done what I would have done for every other fencing match, which is salute, muscle memory going on. shake, shake, behave, you know, and take your kind of your, 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 your emotions and, and, mm. and deal with them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to to frame it. Is if the value base is there from a sport perspective, most sports have yeah. a culture and have a have a value, just as as you're saying, organisations do. If the value underpinning the sport is there, and exactly. and ac- across it as well, there's a sports personship, let's call it yeah. <laughs> uh, ethic that goes across being an athlete too. And again, it's when you bring that into corporate, you often don't know who your competitor is. Sometimes when you're in a sales scenario and there's a specific RFP or you know if there's competing brands for a product then you know who the competitor is but often it's the business is sort of just has these amorphous rivals out in the world (laughs) and so it's it's not quite as you know clear on on terms of the finish line but but being able to bring those character strengths into how you compete I think is you know is equally as important how you do that in business too. So thank you. I really appreciate like digging into that, and I know it's a, share, a story you've 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 shared and experienced on on repeat by the sound of it. But it is so it, it's enriching to hear of like how elite experiences play out for you know the rest of us. So thank you for sharing. Um, 
so of course, you know, you've come back into the corporate world and at some stage you've decided to become a parent as well. So can you talk to us about that decision? You, you said early in your career you had a project plan and you'd worked it out backwards. Was the parenting decision similar in that respect? Was it purposeful or was this a... Oh, or spontaneous. We didn't have an easy time starting a family and um, we were actually just about to embark on a cycle of IVF um, when I did fall pregnant with, with my daughter Isla. And, and so we were quite, I suppose they call it old, but I don't think it was that old, but perhaps um, when it was 35 yeah, I was told yeah, I was right, a geriatric yeah. parent. Exactly. Well, so right. you get all kind of where, where did this term come from? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, and we've been trying for a family for, for so long that it, it it stopped being a kind of you know career plan thing. It just was was a thing as as, as when it happened. And um, you know, it's I don't think anything prepares you for having children. I really don't. Um, and you know, I got pregnant, had Isla, carried on working. I, because we had such um, difficulties, I always thought Isla would be an only child. And with her, then, so I very much tried to keep my career going. Um, feeling sort of two things. I thought me stuck at home alone as a full-time mum, quite a strong personality. I, I wasn't sure that was necessarily healthy for either of us. And therefore thought it was really important that, you know, um, not, not that I put either full time into nursery or anything like that, but, you know, ensured that she had a, a, an ability to live a life that was mm. perhaps not always just tied to me. Um, and I kept my, uh, my sort of professional career going. And then when I fell pregnant with Rory, um, then that was, a, I think like most mothers do, you kind of look at the cost of childcare for two children in London and you go, hang on a second, you compare that to your salary and realise that, that actually... I think I worked out I was earning five pounds a day. By the time everything's said and done, you're kind of going, no, that's, that's silly. So um, I, took, I, I took a career break. And it was at that point that um, I kind of then d- decided to, I got a bit more back involved with uh, fencing and retrained as a coach. Mm. Um, uh, or I th- Yeah. And, um, and just after, odd enough, just after having Rory, so, so Rory was born in 2010, and of course, 2012 was the London Olympics. And, uh, and it's, it's sort of, you know, again, with the home Olympics coming round, and of course, with the Olympics being such a kind of part of my life previous, you kind of, everybody goes, oh, you know, one last chance. Is it, is yeah. it, could, could it be? And I think that that was definitely, in the best sense, a motivator for me as um, kind of a mother to to get fit to because at that time then I wasn't working but you know to just have something which wasn't just full-time you know being a mum some some kind of personal goal so you know but it was as little as my personal goal is to be able to put my fit back into my fencing kit yeah and things like that you know a reason and if I could get back in and do some competitions and feel like I could get my body back and and the other thing I noticed which I found and talking to my other friends who um have have what I would call kind of more successful careers than I do in professionally, that, that motherhood can be very, um, uh, that's the word disenfranchising, but you aren't you. So I'm so used to being Georgina Usher and that's my name and you can, you yeah. know, and it's, it's my identity and it's who I am in work and in sport. And then I'm mummy. Mm. 
like I, I go to the doctors how's mummy I mean it's just like no I'm I'm a per- you know you kind of want to go but I'm here I'm still in the room I, yeah I'm, I'm not defined by my relation not, to that other person yeah. exactly and and I and I really struggled and I think from the, this was both with Isla and with Rory but the way that that sort of the health and I get that I understand all the reasons why but as soon as you get pregnant you, you know you are referred to a lot by as you know how's mum or mummy and I'm like I'm still a person, I might be pregnant, but this kind of desperation for me to hold some sense of me as an individual to kind of cling on to it like this little lifeline because you lose such a lot. You lose your, you know, I have to say you, you lose your sense of self, your body's mm. all over the place. And as an athlete, you're very conscious of all the changes that you yeah. can't, you're noticing it all happening. And of course there's that fear, is this, is this forever? Am I, you know, um, so you're losing control of your body, you're losing control of your identity. You know, you, you're used to being in control over everything and suddenly you can't plan what day you're going to, well, you can, if it, I suppose, if in some ways, but you know, so much is now in the lap <laughs> yeah, of... you're having to go with nature. the flow. It wasn't the go nature the of your no. yeah, And then life. these, these mm. little things come into your life and they dictate every, every waking and sleeping hours, what little you have the first time of years and so for me to then have this sport that I kind of you know I, I think I've retired now three times but it was one of my comebacks <laughs> after, after it was just amazing and allowed me to find me again and it's I mean I know that's that I, I'm sort of sounding I think I'm planning really selfish as I say this but I don't think that I think the impact of motherhood particularly on women who have been fortunate enough to be successful whether that's sport or in their professional careers I'm not entirely sure we've experienced Lord enough about that because I think women feel a sense of incredible loss mm. which is offset by this amazing joy don't get me wrong you know we're all so happy that you you can't kind of everyone goes oh you're so lucky this is amazing and of course for us because we we're very lucky even more lucky because we thought we weren't gonna have children so this is all this incredible thing and then there's this 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 sort of intangible feeling that you're not quite sure you know what's happened to you as in mm. me, person, me Georgina um, and I think that from talking to other other mothers and perhaps maybe it's an age thing as well that there's just just a it just takes a while for that all to kind of to start to slot back in and for you allowed yeah. to to get your sense of self and I would say getting back into fencing in 2010 and I think then um I think I won you know got into the top three in the country by 2011 went to European championships again it was kind of back where I was at um you know didn't didn't get to the level where the Olympics was a realistic you know there was always a chance but it wasn't wasn't going to be like the the sort of Sydney endeavor um and then moving on to my my Commonwealth medal in 2014 it it, that that journey for me I think was very very important in terms of getting my own self-identity back yeah um so I'm very fortunate that I had that Mm. given that I had actually then you know given up work and having yeah, amazing I didn't realize that some of your athletic achievements had been post kids so mm. absolutely and I think that the things that you're saying around identity and getting yourself back there is you know an arc to it isn't there yes. <laughs> it doesn't happen immediately straight away there's a there's an ongoing aspect um I have heard recently that there are some petitions for female athletes in various different sports because I know they're all in different bodies and different you know uh, uh, countries um to start taking maternity leave because of course their athletic career crosses over with some of their their fertile years let's call it I know that sounds quite crude but do you have any perspective or thoughts things that you've observed from a particularly from an athlete's perspective of 
some of the decision making that goes into competitive years and planning kids, um, you know, and whether maternity leave is even possible within most bodies. So certainly in fencing it is. Yeah. And there are so many stories of top level fencers who've gone to the Olympics, won a medal, planned their pregnancies, um, you know, for the for the year off and then had their child and then got back in and straight back up to level. And I think if you're already I think it is harder if you're already at a level and then you can, you know, go away and come back quite quickly. You're going Mm. to get up from fencing terms back up quite fast. Um, and I, I probably don't know enough about other sports. I think it's a lot harder if I, if say, you know, let's say earlier on in the, in when I was 27 and on a trajectory, had I taken time off and had children and come back, I probably would have been slightly behind and then, you know, maybe it would have been harder. I don't know, but I, I think it's really, really important what we allow athletes, female athletes, the scope to be able to do that within sport. And I think that, um, yeah, uh, I I think it's great that that we're embracing, if you like, um, yeah. motherhood as being a perfectly acceptable part of an athlete's career, and it is incredibly. There's so many positiveness, both both to kind of the world of sport, and as, as I think it's uh, Nike has been doing some recent promo shots with with um, yes, you know, featuring a, a pregnant yeah. athlete, and I'm like, it's brilliant, you know. Let's show because. When you know when I got pregnant, you know you didn't see shots like that around. And even just, to, I'm sure, even not just as an athlete, but just as a as a woman and and watching your body just just morph into this thing, which yeah. we don't talk about it enough. We don't celebrate it enough. It it again is perhaps we in that old fashioned you know, kind of you know women should be tucked away in a corner for nine months and yeah, then they're not designed for you're right presented with this beautiful presented. dress and a beautiful baby and pretend it was all lovely <laughs> and that your body's just back to normal like night next week for the you know, for some social occasion. And, and, and it, it, and often I have thought, and we're in a very different situation now, but how does that, tra- what do we do for pregnant women and people taking maternity leave, perhaps if we're talking about national rankings, should we be able to say, and it's something, a really live conversation in British fencing, should we say, you know, if you take maternity leave at any level, should you be able to kind of put your national ranking on hold? Yeah, and so when frozen. you come back in, mm-hmm. Because when I came back in, in I think after both times I came back in, I came back in on a kind of what I call what they call a nine nine nine. It's no seeding, so it takes you a year right. to to get all the points to get back up to where you were. And a slight problem with that is also the fact that that in the first rounds, because you've got no seeding, you then it starts to mess up the groupings because some poor kid is going to end up kind of getting you in their pool because you're the so called um worst person in the pool and then they discover they've got the sort of nine times British champion which of yes course, who just happens to be on the you know so everyone in that pool yeah. feel, grouping feels particularly aggrieved because you know and all it is is because you've just taken a year off perhaps to have a kid so, so have no chance that's interesting yeah, so it's not yeah. not just about the experience for the athlete that's taken some time out to have a kid but also for the other athletes that know full well that just because you've gone off and had a kid doesn't suddenly dis- destroy all your ability to to fence yeah um, and I think that we do need to um you know put in place changes mm. to allow for that both it's something us. that we see in corporate and you raised a good point about you know the decision and it's a really personal decision and a financial decision of like the cost of my childcare versus my income 
if I'm at a net or if I'm at a loss, what's the point of me continuing yeah. at this stage? Some people make the decision, well, I'm still in the flow, so I'm getting yeah. the experience, so that's going to take me elsewhere. But other people, of course, say that. And for me personally, it's just it's a treasure to be able to be yeah. have that time with kids as well. So both are really legitimate pathways. But we're yeah. seeing corporates who are saying, okay, if you're taking maternity leave but you're on a certain promotion pathway, we're going to give you that time we're not going to say okay you had a year out and therefore you're a year behind on your promotion criteria if you were yeah. hitting and on that trajectory and achieving your goals beforehand then we're going to assume that you were still continue you know still on that pathway um because otherwise that's when you start to see this divergence of exactly. you know like same as as you're saying someone doesn't come back into the corporate world in 999 they've come back in with skills yeah. capability and in fact probably have taken other skills from their experience yeah. in their family that they bring back into <laughs> the workplace to enrich their, uh, their competencies is. as well yeah exactly and it's still you know I, I have friends who work for very large global organizations who have suffered from you know they've taken a break they've gone off and had children and they are coming back to these organizations and they are clearly operating at a level above but because of the rigid structure they get inserted back down and you know, and and it is that thing, and we all know is the stories of you know, you know, your boss is that that bloke who's seven years younger than you, kind of, and both of you knowing full well where where the real ability, you know, in terms yeah. of ability where you sit, but in terms of the fact that you're coming in having taken a career break as a woman, and therefore you are automatically kind of that much further down, and and you never get, you will never get that opportunity to to get back up. You're always just mm-hmm. depressed down, and as you say, it. it it for me, I, I get. I mean, I'm. I don't have to face that, fortunately, in my 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 role being the chief exec. But I listen to stories of of friends of mine who've gone back into the workplace, and it very it hugely frustrates me that companies don't look at, at um, as you say, all the other skills that, mm. that women who have taken career breaks can bring back into the workplace, um, and value them in any way. And you know, and I understand maybe people need to be you quotes tested for a period of time but then what happens you know but there is no facility for that it's a bit like we're going to pigeon you in here and this is such a kind of defined corporate structure you will just never be able to you know once it's clear you're operating this level we don't bounce you up we force you to go through you know and I and I think that it is and that in itself is it it, it makes and I'm sure I, I don't understand why organizations do this because you have you've got bright intelligent capable women that could deliver so much more being put into jobs and being made to feel that they're just not as good yeah and this is a huge challenge that I think we're seeing particularly through COVID is like there was a report that's come out yesterday from McKinsey just showing how many people at this point in time are choosing to leave the workforce because financially they haven't been able to make it work uh, and because childcare has become you know so much at the forefront and so we're, we're potentially at this moment where all the hard work of bringing you know, female talent through the ranks may be compromised. So I really want to see how that plays out. But at the moment as well, it is like even for people who are remaining in the workplace, the 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 the, the responsibility of childcare on top of <laughs> means yes. less sleep, less less personal time. And so all of these things that we're saying around find your purpose, find your passion, it's really fair weather discussion, isn't it? <laughs> it's still very valid. But it's like when we're in these crisis moments when your kid needs you financially oh, I know. you need to hold things up there's just you know things exactly and comes to shove yeah 
and it, it you know I had somebody a friend of mine who um said to me day well you know how are you and I sort of you know skirted the question as we all, all are very good at doing because I don't really want to you know she said you, you, you dodged that question because I didn't ask how was work I asked how you were and I was like well you know it, call we, on the friend's half yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're we are you know when you are living through incredibly difficult times absolutely you know your kid is sick you know it's it's a hierarchy of needs discussion and clearly we don't get get away from that but I think that um you also look at something like Black Lives Matter and you kind of go now is not the time just because we are all focused on Covid to ignore that that there are um there are if you like, I don't, I don't want to say battles that still need to be fought because I know that's kind of a motive, but I do believe, you know, we are still engaged in a struggle and that's struggle on gender equality, whether it's struggle in, you know, diversity struggles, these struggles, they need to be kept live Absolutely. and they are important because we are not going to be in lockdown forever. And, and, and again, back to that sort of, you know, what difference am I really making in the world? And absolutely sometimes you go do you know what? I need to check out of this for a period of time but we can't forget about some of the bigger picture items and it may you know it may mean that all we can do now is you know what I'm going to do 20 minutes of reading up about kind of I was reading a bit about colonialism and 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 yeah. to immerse myself in a topic that's maybe all I can give right now to someone else's area of, yeah. of, of kind of you know someone someone else's area of struggle but it is something I can do something or positive. just to be that friend who asks another person hey you exactly. scared of my question I really genuinely yes. want to know who you are <laughs> how yeah. you are and who you yeah. are <laughs> yeah but I agree I think people think so grandiose and actually just the person who's sitting in front of you and just being aware building awareness of other people's struggles yeah. that starts yeah. to break down um and of course recognizing the fact that some people have double triple whammy you know you're not just yeah. a female you may be a female yeah. immigrant from a certain heritage yeah. you know from a certain socioeconomic area all these things yeah. you know they accumulate on people so yeah. it's um uh yeah but this is one thing that we're seeing through this moment is that companies some of the best cultures are starting to double down on things that help people be more human whether it's learning whether it's you know uh how they get uh contributions to childcare that that accommodate in home care so that at least you can you can go out and check yeah. jesse's you know foot when they've stubbed it at lunchtime like it you know without create like how does an organization become part of a social force that reduces some of those frictions for the people yeah. so we're seeing an increase in coaching coming out because it's digital coaching such a beautiful thing that can get into people's homes you can be there for an individual address their needs without and and you can make it programmatic so you can scale it but it can address like you know how are parents reacting how are young people experiencing the workplace because they're not there role modeling or observing other people and it's so hard for young people because exactly it's it's I think it's such an interesting area that you're touching on here because mm. we we're a very small organisation and and we were talking about what we've lost in terms of the, the ability to physically meet up in the office and who does it impact the most and we were sort of asking people how they feel about going back to the workplace um, and a lot of our conversations ended up back at values and trust. And of course, when you've mm-hmm. had time to build trust with people that you work with, it's like uh, somebody who worked with me phoned me up and said, Oh, I'm just letting you know. I said that he, he needed to go early for, for, I think he was doing a yoga class or whatever. <laughs> I said, you, you don't need to let, you know, I mean, he knows he doesn't need to do, let me know, but you, you, you know, I trust you. 
because I know that you work really hard and I know that that you work hours and your different hours and it's completely you know it's fine you just pop a note in my diary and I'll desperately try to not call you so I don't interrupt your session um but we have so so to get to that point you have to work extra hard in building teams and building trust yeah Mm -hmm. because then it works whereas if the trust isn't there then it all starts to undermine and watching young people coming into workplace how do we how can we digitally build that trust where is it sort of um you know has already been established with perhaps the teams that were able to physically establish themselves yeah uh, and it, and it's and, but it does easier. have to be a yeah also i think that if the people 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 in leadership positions have to reframe their mindset and have to look inside themselves and understand their propensity to distrust and what damage that can do to an organization. Because I think often people say, right, well, you know, I'm the chief exec, so will you come in and do a thing for my team, et cetera. But actually sometimes the person that maybe needs to change the most is the chief exec, because if you can't role model it right from the top, it doesn't really matter what, you know, it's not going to work because people are always going to know, well, the chief exec says it's okay to um you know i don't know to, to to adjust my hours so i can just dip out for an hour to do my yoga but the reality is that when she discovered i wasn't there she got really angry and told everyone else that i wasn't committed and da, 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 da. yeah behavior counts um, way more behavior than, absolutely yeah. and it has to be authentic behavior so it's not just mm-hmm. a layer that you put on yourself i must remember not to get cross when i can't get hold of people it's like you have to kind of i think that the challenge is we're all going to have to massively reframe how we feel about staff owning um, and uh, you know, having ownership of their work programs to the extent that flexibility is built in. And of course, if you work in a call centre and you have to pick up the phones between certain hours, of course, that, that's slightly different. But for many or many roles, they are not that time prescriptive. Yeah. Um, and giving people some freedom to operate within that really helps. You know, it shouldn't make any difference. I mean, I often say that um, the, the great thing about employing women who've been away having children is they are fantastically good at multitasking. Yeah, and they exactly. Are really quite organized with their time. Effective. Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere again where their high payoff activities are. Yeah. I yes. feel like I've had a couple of call center conversations lately where I'm pretty sure the other person was in their home. So I think that call centers must have somehow worked out a, they have, a system yes. of call from home. Yeah. 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 Which is but again, really they can't just so. sort of just decide today to nip off for yoga at 12 o'clock. No, exactly. You still have to have coverage. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas, whereas if, if one of my team probably decided that they'd had, you know, they'd work on a presentation all morning and was just desperate to go for a walk, you know, go for a yeah. walk. You know, exactly. Come back fresher. I think you've got the trust piece and the outcomes. It's all about outcomes as opposed exactly. to time clocking in and clocking yeah. out in that kind of thought manager role um and yeah and that again just when you haven't had young people come in and be immersed in that yet it can be hard to one build the trust but two just build how do they know where the disciplines come in like so that they can self-govern because there's so much that I learned from sitting at a desk eight till six you know (laughs) watching other people don't think you should ever sit should never sit at a desk eight to six I I, I was uh, used to stand up and it was a thing I mean good I I I always panic when I hear people are static I was thinking (laughs) get a standing desk, walk, have walk and talk meetings. We did, we did that during lockdown. We had a meeting and we were like, right, it's four o'clock. We're both going to go for a walk. Not together. We're talking on the phone, but Just on your, on your app. You know, yeah, exactly. I am walking up and down the street because it's rather than spending an entire day stuck inside a small room in the house that you allocate no, for working. From totally home, agree. 
no, this is in the olden days when I was starting my career. And as you said, had to wear skirts. We also had to wear yeah. pantyhose. We had oh, the pantyhose no. test. You couldn't have bare legs. So things oh, have changed. Yeah. Well. yeah. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I but still have a whole drawer horrified. of pantyhose that I never my, get. My daughter was horrified, and I was too, that, that her, her school that she's gone to, they, the girls have to wear tights. Yeah. But then I was looking at some of the lengths of the skirts and probably going fair enough <laughs> yeah they're getting away with it yeah <laughs> don't have to kneel, kneel down and whisk the ground that was our yeah. test at, at school <laughs> um anyway I've really enjoyed speaking but I'd love to sort of land our plane so to speak um mm. not that we're on planes lately but I've got a few rapid questions for you so if okay. I just start the question and if you finish it whatever comes to mind it's, it's all um it's all super valuable I do my best work when uh a little bit of pressure yeah absolutely yeah, bit of pressure the most surprising thing about the experience of being a ceo is how lonely it can get sometimes hmm. in what way can you elaborate so you, you, your lack of a peer group so mm. when you are working up in an organization you have people that are on the same level and if you're struggling you pick up the phone to them and go actually i'm having a, a kind of, you know, a moment of self-doubt or what should I do in this situation? I can go and advise, ask advice from my peers or maybe go to my boss and then suddenly you get to CEO and you're looking around going, well, where, where does that advice come from? And, and, and the solution to that, you know, there is a solution and there's a sort of helpful thing. You, 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 you build your what's called your personal boardroom and I have built mm-hmm. the structure to get over that. But that is, a, that is something that I think a lot of chief execs have kind of recognised that actually you kind of only get a job and what you don't, what you don't anticipate is the loneliness yeah. because when there's a difficult decision to make, you know, and, and you don't get to kind of chat with all your other work colleagues, particularly because sometimes, sometimes it can be not appropriate for you to do. And yeah. who, who do you have the conversation with? Yeah. To share the, share the decision-making mm. and machinations of how to work through things. Yeah. I'm glad it's good to hear about the personal board of directors, so to speak. I think that's a important you know, and, and I'm sure there's other peers who probably aren't having the same scenario as you, but who can associate. The, yes, the and we, we are, and we're very lucky because in sport we don't see our the other sports as competition. So we have a very yeah. strong peer network, which yeah. which which kind of moved into that. You know, when when you suddenly go, oh gosh, this is hard and lonely, and then this group of people we've, we've kind of um, created a CEO forum in the UK, and it's fantastic because it really helps in those difficult moments. But I can imagine in other, organi- in other industries, you're, you know, you're not going to phone up the CEO of your competitors and have a chat about something in quite the same way as we might do cross sport. Yeah. No, it's a really it's a good industry insight. I want my 20-year-old self to know that. Wow. Um, Gosh, that is hard. If I could package up the the feeling I had in the 2014 Commonwealth when I'm on the piste and it was super important. I really wanted that gold medal, but it wasn't as important as my family. And therefore it took just that little bit of pressure off. I know I said I performed well under pressure, but not so much pressure. And I think that I, if I could just release myself from, from that it's uh, very hard you know that maybe it's that last five mm. percent of pressure mm. in a way that children force you to release it 
it would it would be incredible and i don't i don't know how i would articulate that and give it to my 20 year old self but my god if i could give that 20 year old one gift it would just be that sense that you get when you know when your entire world isn't just on your performance yeah so interesting i have an experience like that from my career where i had a certain piece of a project that just got, wasn't going well and i was so focused on executing you know to the to the to the T and eventually I got there and someone more senior in the business asked me like what changed what what worked and I said I just gave up a little (laughs) which sounds so counterintuitive but I just stopped caring as much exactly for me at the time yeah yeah exactly it is amazing and and it's so hard to try and explain to a young person because they do particularly if you're competitive or desperately trying to achieve something you're so focused and and I said earlier you it's about the effort reward but we're still on the more effort is more reward, more effort is better. And it's yeah. kind of knowing that more effort isn't better, but it, but it is something slightly deeper and psych- a psychological trigger, which obviously happened for you and happened for me for different reasons. But I just don't know how you, how a 20 year old can, can have that without perhaps just going through that experience, yeah. not necessarily of childbirth, but that kind of moment. Yeah. Where you suddenly just I think it's care, kind of but don't over identify like this yeah. isn't your That's whole life. That's a good life. way of putting it. Yeah. Because I think when you feel like your professional worth or even your worth as a person rests on that thing, yes, you suffocate it. Yes. <laughs> Whereas yes. if you can say, I'm still focused, I'm dedicated to making this thing work, but I am more than this one thing. Again, as you say, how do you tell a 20-year-old that? Yes. But, <laughs> but do you know what? That is spot on. Because as I yeah. said earlier, I didn't like the fact that suddenly I was only mum and then had to get back to being Georgina. But the fact that I was Georgina and mum did release me from that over-identification yeah. in terms of Georgina Rush the shirt, as the athlete that's never won the Commonwealth Championships, you know. So diversify your um, your worth goals, yeah. <laughs> I guess, is like where, you're, where you measure yourself. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, if we were mentoring other women in your professional mm-hmm. space, what would we want them to know? I think um, I think, oh, gosh, if we're talking about the sports sector and looking at women, I think it's really important to keep putting yourself forward. Mm-hmm. Um, sport being what it is does have a lot of kind of um, you know, and I um, interviewed a lot of people in sport, and there's some fantastic women out there. But I will say that, you know, the men that come out of sport, they are competitive. They will put themselves forward in the same way as you'd expect them to do when they're playing their sport. And I think that women just um, shouldn't be afraid of, of, of shouting for themselves a little bit louder. Mm. Um, and I think probably that's true across across all sectors. But also it's um, I have found the sports sector amazing for supporting women. Amazing. I've I, In my role as chief exec and my position with British Fencing and all the interactions we've had with all the stakeholders that we work with, I have never encountered anything that's made me feel in any way, you know, I mean, discriminated or that women aren't supported. It has been entirely the opposite. So I would say that, you know, this is, this is a fantastic sector for women to have a career, but you do need to put yourself out there because, Mm. Again, unless you're relying on someone else to give you a hand up, which I do think for those of us women that are already in the sector, we should should and do support 
um, you know, more women to come in. But you do have to, sometimes you do have to make that first step yourself. But once you do, it, it's a great place to work. It really is. Absolutely. So take a little bit of self-promotion. <laughs> Don't yes. be bashful. Yeah. yeah. And my gift to the next guest is? Well, it's, it's, it's hard not to want to pass on the advice I was given, which is, is to enjoy the, the conversation. And, um, and maybe I can talk a little bit about the, the, the sort of fear of failure. And I think one always is, is any of these things perhaps worried about how one is judged and perceived. And I think suspending that is really important because mm-hmm. nothing of what we say whether it comes out of it wrong is 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 wrong. It's it's a view, and um, and it it has value and meaning on on a level. Um, and I think that if we can dig deep on some of the topics that that you know, if we can dig deep on the topics that matter to us, we've got gifts in and of themselves that can be passed forward. And that yeah. So I'd say just a deep breath and go for it. Love it. And I think that's a gift to me as well, because I've felt the same. I come into these conversations and I think, oh, am I going to phrase it the right way? Or do I know enough about this area? Or am I a bull in a china shop? And because the people are letting me into these discussions about Indigenous health or women in sport or like being, you know, same sex attracted in, in a artistic world or like whatever it happens to be. And I think, oh, do I have the right language? But actually even just recognising that being involved in the conversations is a, is a gift in itself. It is, <laughs> Even if yes. you get it wrong, show up, exactly. you're showing up. So yeah. it's, that's value. So I will pass that forward. Thank you very much. Thank and I'll you. take it to heart myself. So thank you, Georgina. I've loved speaking. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed our conversation. The real work wouldn't be possible without the contributions of our whole team here at Lantern Rouge. Production support is managed by Mark Hayes and our beautiful music is brought to you by Artlist. That's it for now. See you at work.